Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Once again, welcome to Crosspoint. Glad you're here with us celebrating over the Christmas season. There's all kinds of cool stuff that has happened, which you've heard about. There's lots to come, which you've also heard about. And we would love to see you at any of those events that you can be at. It was just a great time to be together. Uh, my name is Kyle. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And I want to start off this morning by uh, giving you a piece of information that for the majority of the people in the room will either, one, make you look at me as really old, or two, will make you feel really old. And so I apologize to the latter group, um, but I, I think you'll, you'll catch what I'm saying here. The piece of information that, I, that I'd like to give you this morning is that I was born in 1986, all right? 1986. So the youngins in the room are like, what a dinosaur. And the older people in the room are like, wow, why does this infant have a microphone up there? And everyone who actually was born in 1986 as well, you feel old too by just recognizing the fact, right? I was, I'm 35 years old. What is going on here? The reason I tell you that is because uh, I grew up through my pretty formative junior high, high school years in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And during that time, um, it felt like this was true across the board, but it was for sure true in my life and in my context. Music was really, really important to me and really, really important. It felt like to everybody, right? I don't see that quite as much in like the teens that I work with. There's some that care a lot, but it seems like generally they don't care that much. Like your opinion of music and your passion for music and what kind of music you listen to and what it said, like people cared a lot when I was growing up. And I know that every generation always says, like, my generation's music was the best. So I'm going to jump on that bandwagon and just come out and say, I believe my generation's music is the best. And here's, here's why I think that. This was a time in history, history, not that long ago. This is a time, the late 90s, early 2000s, where, uh, like, grunge was still a pretty big thing. It started a little bit earlier. Uh, like, punk rock was, like, still in the mix. And then there was, like, this offshoot of punk rock that, that gets called pop punk. And it was, like, a little less riot-y than regular punk music, a little more accessible to the general population. And, uh, and then there was this other kind of genre or, or category of music, and there was a lot of different kinds of music lumped into this, but the term might sound familiar to you, maybe, is emo music, okay? And if you, I, I see some heads nodding, and the older people are like, what are you talking about? But here's the deal. I, like, ate all of that up. I absolutely loved it, and here's why. It all had this current of angst running through it. And growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, I don't know why. It was a pretty great time of life in retrospect, but everybody felt this level of angst. I don't know if it's just part of being a teenager or what, but all these bands, they kind of had this like anti-establishment, like, like anti-the-man thing. They, they tapped into like what we felt spoke so clearly to us, like the heartbreak that we experienced and the hard things that we were going through and all this stuff. And I know like now, yeah, Taylor Swift does more of that, but this was like the good stuff, all right? And it was raw and it was real and we loved it. And uh, if there was a band that, that embodied this like emotional angst, passion, better than anybody else is this band called Dashboard Confessional. And there's, I see some people know what this is. Again, the vast majority of you don't. But it is this band where, like, if, 
Man, you would have thought the world was ending every time this guy opened his mouth, right? He cared so desperately about every little thing that went on in his life. And it was like borderline whiny, but really way beyond borderline whiny. He, he was whiny. And, and uh, it just had all this emotion attached to it. And I'll be honest, this stuff holds up. Tr- truly, we, Megan and I, we, we listen to this kind of music as often as we possibly can. When we're driving the car, the kids finally fall asleep, and like raining tacos and cocoa melon are dead to us. We'll throw on like our music, like, uh, like Yellow Card and Reliant K and Dashboard and Snow Patrol and all these bands. And, uh, and we were driving back from Utah. We were there visiting. Uh, my family met there, and we visited each other over Thanksgiving. And on the way back, we hit a bunch of really bad traffic. And so the trip ended up taking a lot longer than we expected. And so we're driving up the 99. Our kids are dead to the world asleep in the back. And Megan and I are just jamming out to this acoustic set of dashboard confessional, which, some, which somehow the acousticness made it extra raw and extra passionate, you know? And there was literally a moment in this song where he stopped saying words and just started making noises. Like, he was passionately groaning and yelling just to get all the feelings out, you know? Like, that's, and, and I, I remember sitting there, and we both just audibly started laughing. Cause we're like, how ridiculous is this? How absurd is this? But that was, like, a pretty common experience in that genre of music. And they knew what they were doing. Because there is something really compelling about this deep, deep angst or this deep, deep passion and they made a lot of money off of it. They sold a lot of records because of it and then really formed a whole mini generation of people's musical tastes off of it. Now, why do I tell you all that? Seems very unimportant, right? The reason that I wanted to share all that with you is today, last week, and next week, we are doing this kind of short series where we are looking at uh, different carols that are carols each and every one of us would probably know. We've sang a hundred times. We've at least heard a hundred times. And we're looking at each one of these carols and recognizing the source material that they were based off of, which is scripture. And we're looking at what the, the main point or what, what truth is trying to be communicated through these songs. And the, the carol that we're going to look at today, it's one of those two, you might catch which one it is, is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And uh, I love this carol. This is actually my favorite Christmas carol out of all of them. Um, I know it's not always a fan favorite, but this is one of my absolute favorites. And the reason is it taps into the same passion, emotion, and angst that I love so much about the music that I grew up with. Because when you look at this song, when we sing it, and when we uh, read the lyrics, there's this longing, there's this expectation. There's this anticipation for the Messiah to come, and people just can't wait for it to be here. And I love that A Christmas Carol, written all those years ago, kind of feels like it could be covered by Dashboard Confessional to me. <laughs> I would listen to that all season long, let me tell you. But I think the reason that this, uh, that this carol kind of embraces that angst that I love so much is because the person who wrote it was a pretty angsty guy, a pretty emotional person. His name was Charles Wesley, Um, He was uh, born in the early 1700s, and he wrote a ton of hymns and songs and poems, something like 6,500 hymns, and he made it into a ton of hymn books. If you've you've ever sang a hymn, it's likely that one of them was written by uh, Charles Wesley. 
He and his brother John Wesley both went to Oxford together. They had a lot of theological training. He knew a lot of truth. He knew how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible well. Um, and he and his brother, as well as a few other people, they kind of started this little club where they would get together, they would study God's word, and they would worship together, and they would uh, serve each other and serve people who were poor and sick and would go visit them and that sort of thing. And, and they got this nickname called the Methodists, and that's, that's where the denomination of, the, of Methodism comes from, and there's other offshoots that come from that as well. And so they cared a lot about like the theological truth and the action out of that, but Charles brought like this interesting dynamic to that group. Because he, he was the artist. He was, he was the emotional one. John Wesley is recorded as saying he would always be really nervous when Charles would come into the room because he just knew that everything he was working on would be spread all over the room. Like he was that stereotypical artist, head in the clouds a lot of the time, but he just had to get the song out of his heart or had to get the poem written down. And, and then he was gone. He was gone in the next moment. Now he has this really interesting uh, dynamic, however, um, that was unique at the time. We look back on it and, and recognize, oh, that's exactly how things should be, but it was kind of unique at the time. He went to Oxford, learned a lot about what it meant to be a pastor and what uh, the Bible was saying and theological truth. He was actually ordained to be a minister, but he himself said he did not have an actual heart-changing experience with the Holy Spirit until later in his life. But after that moment, he had all this truth that he understood and knew how to use, and he had this experience, passion, desire, longing to know Jesus. And what's really cool is we get to benefit from that in all these hymns that he wrote. He, he, we can identify with him in his passion for Jesus. Maybe that it's even hard for us to put into words, but every single line and every single thing he wrote goes right back to Scripture, ties right back to it. His brother's quoted as saying, you won't find a line in any of his scripture or any of his uh, songs that don't connect back to the word of God. And this carol is no different. Um, it is chock full of some important truth that I would like for us to sit with and to wrestle with today. The carol itself was inspired by one verse in the Old Testament in the book of Haggai, which we don't spend a lot of time in the book of Haggai, but it's a minor prophet. What's going on in the book of Haggai? We're not gonna read the verse right now. We're gonna look at it later. But what was going on at that time when this book was written is Israel was back in Jerusalem. They had been in exile in Babylon. They had been released to come back to Jerusalem. They had started building, rebuilding the city and the temple. They kind of hit a lull, ran into some opposition, and by the time Haggai writes what he writes, uh, it's kind of a an encouragement to get back to it. Like, keep going, let's, let's keep this thing going. And throughout Haggai's writings, there's all of this, like so many books of the Old Testament, there's all these points that, that are meant to draw our attention forward to when the Messiah would come. And if you read the book of Haggai, or really any of the minor prophets, or really most of the Old Testament, if you look at the, the life of the Israelites, and we kind of pull back a little bit and get kind of a bigger picture of what's going on in their life and in their culture and how they see things, we see this longing. We see this anticipation. We see this expectation for the Messiah, the one that, Jesus, that God had promised to send to set things right. And when I look at the Israelites and when I consider how they functioned, the word that keeps coming to my mind that I want us to wrestle with this morning is this. I get the feeling that they were really desperate. They were really desperate to see the coming Messiah. 
And as I look at their life, and as I look at my life, the question I keep finding myself asking is, especially right now during this time of the year, would I say that I am desperate to see Jesus clearly? Would I say that I am desperate, not just wanting to, not just hoping it'll happen, am I desperate to see Jesus? Is that a word that I would use to describe myself? I think that's an important question for us to ask when we see so much desperation of people a longing to see Jesus and to worship him as king. See, I think that that can actually be kind of a difficult question for us to answer because I think probably most of us in here don't actually really know what it's like to be desperate for something. Now, I know that's a generalization and maybe that's not your experience, but I'll just speak for me and this might be true of you. I don't know if there have been a ton of times in my life where I could honestly say like I was desperate to get somewhere or to gain something or to get out of a place. I don't think it's really happened that often. You know, like I might feel desperate for a break or desperate to get on vacation somewhere or desperate to uh, gain some money to be able to buy what I need to buy and do what I need to do and take care of people that I need to take care of. Might feel like some desperation to like get in the door on like a Black Friday sale to get the newest gadget or toy or whatever. Might feel desperate to get coffee in my system on an early morning. Might, might be desperate to get finals done or whatever. Desperate to use the bathroom if you're like stuck in traffic for hours upon hours or something like that. Honestly, I think like the, the best, closest look that I've ever gotten to experiencing real desperation is by seeing it in the eyes of my children when it's time to take a shower and go to bed. Because for some reason, they just would, they would fight tooth and nail to not have to go do that. It's like a horror movie in my house when it's time for bed. There's like claw marks in the floor as we're dragging them to go do some personal hygiene and then go to bed so they can be happy the next day, right? They're desperate to not let that happen. The irony of that is when you get older, that's like all you want to happen. You're like, can I just, I would love to just take a shower and go to bed. That sounds like a great day to me, right? But honestly, like none of that's real desperation, is it? Like not really. And I think while many of us haven't experienced a high level of desperation, I do think that we do have a category for it uh, because of how connected the world is. Over this past year, we've been able to see some visual images of real desperation. I can't think of a better example than the surge of refugees that the world has seen and experienced over this last year. I mean, I, I'm speaking, I'm not speaking crassly about any of this, but I mean, many of us saw the actual footage of, an, of Afghan people tying themselves to the wheels of an airplane because they were so desperate to get out of their situation that they were in. Like we've seen images and footage of these people in these caravans traveling so far because they are so desperate to get out of the situation that they live in. They're willing to risk their safety. They're willing to break the law just to get out of where they find themselves. And whatever your opinions politically on like the refugee stuff, I think we can all agree like it is a high level of desperation to make somebody go do something like that. See, I, I think even though sometimes we can't understand it very well, I truly believe that Scripture paints this picture for us that as followers of Jesus, we are actually supposed to be a little angsty. We actually are supposed to be desperate people, not for things that we make of our own, not for things that we can grasp, but instead for one thing, one person alone, that we are to be desperate for Jesus. 
We recognize that the way the world is is not how it should be, and we live according to this new set of values that Jesus has shown us as part of his kingdom, as citizens of his kingdom, and we feel the tension because the world doesn't play by that same set of values, and so actually we should feel a little bit of angst if we're really following Jesus, which could, the only logical th like thing from that is that we feel desperate to be with him. We feel desperate to see him. See, I think uh, even though it's difficult for us to understand that question, I think it actually can be pretty easy for us to answer if it remains an abstract concept. Because if all it is is some rhetorical question out here, am I desperate to see Jesus? I think most Christians in the room would say, yeah, of course. Of course I am. Yeah, I want to see Jesus. I want, I want him to be uh, in control of my life. I, I want all that to be true. But what does that mean? What does it mean for us to live our lives more desperate to see Jesus than anything else? And what it does for me is I, as I started to think through that because I'm like, that's too easy. It's too easy of an answer. How do we break it apart and, and be able to answer honestly? I think what we actually need to do is answer a few follow-up questions. And as we answer these follow-up questions, I think we're gonna actually be able to honestly answer the primary one, which is, are we desperate to see Jesus? And so these three questions, they kind of intersect at different parts of our life, and they're the questions I want us to sit with and to wrestle with today. I have not had fun working through this over the last few weeks. I know it's Christmas. It's supposed to be warm, fuzzy, good vibes. I know. I'm sorry. I apologize. I have not had a ton of fun working through this, but I feel like it's very important. It's very significant for us, and it's, and it's really good if we're willing to look at it clearly. So the first follow-up question I think that we need to ask ourselves is this. Am I desperate to see Jesus as king of my life? Am I desperate to see Jesus as king of my life, my personal life? One of the lyrics of the carol, Come the Long Expected Jesus, says, come and rule in our hearts alone. Is that what I really want? Is that what I'm really going after, is that Jesus would rule my heart, him and him alone would rule my heart? That's my desire, is for my, my desire is for Jesus to be king king over my decisions, king over my actions, king over my motivations, my time, my dreams, my plans, that every day I start out by surrendering them back to him. That when I wake up in the morning, the first thought out of my head is Jesus be king over my life today. The last thought that leaves my brain before I close my eyes and go to sleep is Jesus be king over my life tomorrow. Is that what I'm after? Am I desperate for Jesus to be king of my life. It, it reminds me, it takes my mind to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 says this, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you, earnestly I seek after you. I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a, parch, in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Do I need his presence in my life like I need water when I'm dying of thirst? Would I say that my whole being longs after him, that I earnestly seek after him? Would that be true of me if I said it? Or maybe more likely, do I feel like it's enough to clock in for a couple hours a week, do a nice thing or two, know the right things, vote a certain way, slap a calligraphy Bible verse on a sign up in my house somewhere, and do I feel like, hey, that's good enough? That's good enough. 
See, I think if we settle for that, we are missing out on all that Jesus promises us as his followers when we desperately see him as our king. So how do we get there? How do we do that? I really do think for us to be desperate to see Jesus as our king, it really comes down to us seeing ourselves and our relationship to God clearly. That's the story of the gospel, right? That humanity has rebelled against God and that each and every one of us are born with this bent toward doing things our own way over maintaining control over our lives and left to our own devices and left to our own cleverness, we will bring about hurt over and over and over again in the world. We cannot do it on our own. And to be really, really honest, I don't even think you'd have that hard of a time convincing someone who doesn't believe in Jesus that that is true. I mean, look around over the last couple years where everybody took every ounce of power and influence that they had to try to push their agenda and the thing that they thought was important, and it just, regardless of what it was, they ended up hurting other people throughout the process. That is a wonderful picture of what happens when sin is running the show in the world around us. And that's the situation that each and every one of us find ourselves in. Scripture tells us that we are dead in our sin. We cannot accomplish anything in our state apart from Jesus. The reality is that we are already in a desperate state. We cannot dig ourselves out of that hole, but the wonderful, beautiful, encouraging truth of the gospel is what we're here to celebrate each and every Sunday is that God came to us, that Jesus came to us in a human body, lived a perfect human life, experienced all the same things we experienced, was willing to lay down his life in the most horrific way possible so that our sin could be forgiven because we can't do it on our own and we have a hope for a new life and a new future when we give our life over to him. That's beautiful. What possible response could we have other than desperation for Jesus to be king of our life if we actually see ourselves clearly, the state that we're in, and we see what Jesus has done for us clearly. I mean, I feel like nothing would be off limits if that were true of me. My mind jumps to places like Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Like, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Like, if I saw myself and my relation to Jesus clearly, who cares what I lose so that I can have him? Who cares what it's going to cost me as long as I can have him? I think about all these examples in the gospels of real life people who were like breaking down roofs to get to Jesus. They were going around social norms to get to Jesus. They were risking all kinds of safety and uh, acceptance and social status to come to Jesus, be near to Jesus. I even think about people in the world today who are willing to do whatever it takes to get close to him. We were in Peru a number of years ago, and there's something about, I've experienced this a few times, not a lot of times, but a few times in these small little villages way up in the mountains, and these, these, uh, these people who live up there, it's like a real cost to even get to a church building to come and to worship together. And I mean, this is a bunch of teenagers trying to pull off Spanish songs, so it's terrible. It's not like good conditions for an emotional response, okay? Plus, it's like one speaker, and it's turned all the way up as far as it could possibly go. Yet, I saw this a few times where these people come in and you can just tell they are desperate to encounter Jesus. There are tears streaming down these people's faces. Not because they'd even done anything wrong. 
They just needed to be close to Jesus. They were desperate for it. And I look at people throughout history and in scripture and even the people that I've seen with my own eyes and I look at them and I say, that's what I need. I need that kind of desperation to see Jesus as my king. Am I willing to give up whatever I need to give up to make it happen? Because what he offers is so much better. We read, I mean, we read about it in the carol itself, that Jesus sets us free, that he removes fear and sin. He gives us hope for the future. This is what Jesus offers in himself. So am I desperate to see Jesus as king of my life? I think the second follow-up question we need to ask ourselves is, am I desperate to see Jesus as king of my world? And when I say my world, um, I mean like my sphere of influence, my relationships that I have, my workplace, my family. You know, I mean, I'm sure everyone here has heard what I think is a big lie, which says, you can change the world. No, you can't, you're one person. But you can change your world, and when each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus change our world, then the whole world gets changed. And so we have a lot of influence in the circles that we run and the people that we have relationship with. Am I desperate to see Jesus made clear and worshiped as king in my world, the places that I have influence? See, here's the reality. The kingdom is what the world needs. The kingdom of God is what the world needs. Relationship with Jesus is what the world needs and I think it's actually what the world wants, even if they don't know how to put it into words. So I wanna read to you that, that verse from Haggai that this whole thing is based off of. It says this, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. Almost everyone agrees that this is a prophecy pointing to the coming Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And what Haggai says here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is what is desired by all nations, not just the ones who believe him, but all nations. The one that, that is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. See, I actually think that if we as the church did a really good job reflecting Jesus, actually Jesus, real Jesus, not our version, not the one that we're comfortable with, the real biblical Jesus, if we did a good job reflecting that, the nations, the world, my world, the people around me, they would look up one day and be like, oh, that's what I want. Oh, that's what I've been looking for. But we have to be willing to desperately go after it. So I, now that I'm older, I've moved from listening to a whole bunch of angsty music. Now I basically just listen to podcasts. And I don't, I'm sure many of you do as well. And there's a billion podcasts to pick from, right? There's crime podcasts, there's sports podcasts, there's business podcasts, there's any kind of podcast that you could possibly imagine. And uh, I'm gonna tell you something that's really embarrassing and you can do whatever you want with this information, but my favorite podcast, the one that brings me more joy than anything else, really, honestly, in the podcast world at least, is I listen to this podcast very regularly called Return of the Pod. It's a Star Wars podcast, all right? Um, there's lots of Star Wars podcasts out there, but this is the best one. And it used to be called Job of the Pod, and now it's called Return of the Pod, and, and that's like a whole thing. And there's like hundreds of episodes, and some of them go like two hours at a time. And it's three people who just talk, 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 talk about Star Wars. Movies, TV shows, books, comic books, toys, Legos, video games, theories, rumors, all this stuff about Star Wars, and I'll be honest, I love it. I am there for every second of it. I love it. It's so fun. 
And now I grew up on Star Wars. I enjoy the storytelling and all that kind of stuff. But I, I invest a lot of time consuming content that has to do with Star Wars. And you know what? I've decided that if I ever got the invite to come be a part of Return of the Pod, I think I could hang with them. I really do. I think I could contribute to the conversation. I have spent that amount of time investing in Star Wars information, which is pathetic, which is so lame, so lame. But I love it a lot, and I will talk to anyone about Star Wars, and I could talk a long time with anyone about Star Wars. And as I was sitting through this, and I was considering whether I'm desperate to see Jesus as king of my world, I had to ask myself the question, man, then why is it so hard for me to open my mouth about Jesus to the people in my life who need to know him? If he's the most important, so much more important than dumb Star Wars, right? But am I willing to open my mouth? Am I willing to risk relationship? Am I willing to listen to the Holy Spirit for when I should say something and when I should shut my mouth? Am I willing to rearrange my time, my comfort level, all the things that I feel like I get to still have control over? Am I willing to lay them all down because I am desperate to see Jesus as king of my world? How cool would it be if the people in your life, you're surrounded by followers of Jesus, not because you've separated yourself from the world, but because every time somebody who doesn't know him comes into contact with you, that story ends with them coming to know Jesus. How awesome would that be? That's what the church is for. And it doesn't happen in this room. It happens as we go. But it only happens if we're desperate to see it happen. So question one, am I desperate to see Jesus as king of my life? Question two, am I desperate to see Jesus as king of my world? The last question I want us to wrestle with, which I think is equally as important, is am I desperate to see Jesus as king forever? See, this, this carol, it taps into this reality that we as believers have to deal with of God's kingdom being here. Jesus says the kingdom is near. In fact, it's here right now because I'm here. And now his spirit lives in us, so we are like little kingdom outposts all over the world as followers of Jesus and as, and as churches. But there's this reality that even though the kingdom is here, it's not yet fully realized. Travis was talking about it earlier this morning that Jesus is going to return to set everything right, to establish his kingdom in fullness. Our job right now is to just try to make it look as similar as it can to when Jesus comes and sets it up forever. Doesn't, this this uh, hymn doesn't only just reference Jesus coming as a baby, but also taps into this longing, this desperation to see Jesus return for good. Now, there's lots and lots of scripture that point to Jesus' return. I just want to draw our attention to one. It's in the book of Titus, and it says this, Titus chapter two, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is what has happened because Jesus has come here, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, making, being desperate to see Jesus as king over our lives, and to live controlled, upright, and godly lives is in the present age, being desperate to see Jesus as king over our world, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, who are desperate for good works. There is a time that will come, no one knows when it is, when Jesus will return and he will set up his kingdom in fullness and will reign forever. But I'll be really honest with you, I don't think about this enough. I don't. 
it doesn't take up a ton of mental real estate in my brain. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Maybe, maybe you identify with that, maybe you don't. But I, I think it's difficult for me to consider this and think about this and keep this in the front of my mind because every generation thinks it's gonna be them. Every generation has weirdos who come out of the woodwork who, who are like, I'll tell you exactly when it's gonna go down. Just send me $50 and I'll send you my book. There's, there's all this murkiness in scripture about exactly what's gonna happen and when it's gonna happen. There's all kinds of theological debate. It means things will change massively. And if I'm honest, and I hate to admit this, sometimes I find myself saying, I don't want it to happen while I'm here because it's gonna be a hard, hard go for the church. I really, really don't think scripture paints a picture of us just getting poofed out. I think that the church is gonna endure some very, very hard things leading up to the return of Jesus. But the picture that we get of what that kingdom is gonna look like, fully realized, is beautiful church. It's beautiful that every tear would be wiped away. There's no sorrow, there's no sin, there's no death. Every single thing that divides us as human beings will no longer be part of the equation. That the best parts of every culture and every people and every person will come together into one big family. That shadows won't even be able to exist because we will be so presently in the light that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king. And we will be in his presence like we have never experienced before forever. What in the world? Why would our response to that picture of the kingdom not be desperation? I'll be the first to say for me, because that means I gotta let go of control. I like the way my life is. I like my family. I like how things are going. But if I really saw clearly the kingdom that is coming, why would I not be desperate to go after it? So what do we do with all this? Because here's the deal, there's no practical steps I can give you. There's no like, go do A, B, C, and D, and all of a sudden you're desperate to see Jesus as king of your life and the world and and, and desperate to see him forever. So there's not really like steps I can give you, but I do think this morning presents an opportunity, an opportunity for us to reposition our hearts, come to Jesus and say, where I haven't been desperate up to this point, I want to be desperate now. I think an awesome way to be able to do that is to sing this very song that we've been talking about. Carol that we've been talking about. And the band's gonna come up and we're gonna sing it together. And here's what I would encourage you to do as we do that. I believe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to us. I believe that he has practical things that he wants you to do out of the information that you've heard today. But like with everything with Jesus, it starts with surrender. And so what I would encourage us to do today is that as we sing this song, let's sing it as a prayer, asking God to birth that desperation that comes from clearly seeing him. And let's sing it as an anthem, that we will not stop until we see Jesus as king over every part of our life, that we will not quit until we see Jesus as king over all of our world, and that while we're doing that, we anticipate, desperately anticipate the hope of Jesus returning in the kingdom that he's going to bring with him, because that is how we endure, and that is how we experience fulfillment, and that is how we experience, as the song says, the joy of every single longing, desperate heart. Would you pray with me as we get ready to sing this together? Jesus, we want you. 
And Lord, sometimes we, I just feel like we find ways to like soften that. But Lord, we just, we want you. We want your spirit. We want your presence. We want you to be king over everything. Lord, even when that seems like our actions are telling a different story, God, we want that to be true. Lord, would you give us the clarity, give us the boldness, give us the courage, Lord, to leave whatever it is behind and to desperately seek you, God. May we, may we recognize that we live in this world and we have responsibilities in this world, but actually everything that we do is better and more fulfilled and more meaningful when we keep you as our focal point of desperation. Jesus, we want you to return. We wanna recognize clearly what you've done the first time you came. And Lord, we eagerly anticipate what you're gonna do in this moment, what you're gonna continue to do in the life of our church. And Lord, we so look forward to the kingdom that you'll bring when you return. We love you. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.